Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 2. As we continue our series through John's Gospel, this evening we are looking at considering verses 1 through 12 of John chapter 2. Hear God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Last time, by way of review, I presented a survey of chapter 1 in order to highlight the principles of chapter 1 that are important for us to know in order to understand this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. You might be thinking, well, what's the importance of understanding this miracle? Isn't a miracle something that you are confronted with and you either believe it happened or not? Well, I would remind you that the word for miracle that John uses consistently through his, throughout his gospel is the word sign. Verse 11 of our text says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This means that what Jesus did, as E. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, is a miracle with a message. And in order to understand the significance of this sign, understand this message, we spent some time placing this first of the Lord's signs in its context by considering what John has said about the world's reception of Jesus the Word. And what John has emphasized is that while Jesus, as the word, brought to us a message from God in his words as he taught and preached, his actions also served as a message. In a sense, his entire life was a message from God. His coming into the world spoke of man's need and of God's willingness to help. But his coming also highlights man's rebellion as man encounters the true light of God incarnate and doesn't believe in him. For the majority of people either don't know him or knowing him, reject him. John refers to a few who received him in faith and became children of God. But for many, the light of Jesus, as he in word and deed proclaims the truth of salvation in himself, for many, the light of Jesus is repulsive. Nevertheless, the light of Jesus revealing his glory shines upon sinners. And this is the main significance of the seven signs that John reveals in his first 12 chapters. 
They are signs pointing to Jesus' glory as the divine Son of God, for these are miraculous signs that cannot be humanly explained. They point to Jesus as having power that only God can have. And so ultimately, these signs are a call to repentance. They are a call to faith in the Lord Jesus. They reveal his glory, glory as, a, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Last time we began a consideration of the occasion of this first sign. And I want to briefly review what was said about the occasion before moving on to consideration of the sign itself. And then the sermon will end with a consideration of the result of this first of Jesus' signs. So the occasion, obviously, of this first sign was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Cana was a city to the west of the Sea of Galilee and some distance of 30 miles or so from Bethany beyond the Jordan, near where Jesus was baptized and where he had the interactions that are recorded there in chapter 1 with John the Baptist. The distance necessitated several days in order to cover the distance on foot. And apparently Jesus and his disciples were all invited to this particular wedding. Going back into chapter 1, John has been specifically mentioning what has been happening day by day in uh, this early week of Jesus' life of ministry with his and his disciples' attendance at the wedding taking place on day 7. Now it's also likely based on verse 12 that his brothers were also at this wedding, but at least we know for sure his mother Mary was at this wedding along with Jesus and his disciples. In fact, his mother is the one who tells Jesus they have no wine. And uh, if you think about her role in informing Jesus of this matter, it probably indicates that she's involved in the catering of the wedding, which likely indicates that the bride and or groom were related to, or at the very least, close friends of Jesus' family. Wedding festivities in that culture took place over a week of feasting and celebration And it was the bridegroom's responsibility to pay for all of the food and wine. I can imagine that this responsibility was a kind of test of his ability to financially care for his bride. But regardless, we know that in that culture, it it was a terribly embarrassing thing uh, for the groom if the wine were to run out, as it did at this wedding. The guests were to find out that the supply of wine was depleted, the celebration would come to a halt, and the groom would be shamed. Now, from our point of view, in our culture, we tend to think that to run out of wine at a wedding is no big deal. Not even every wedding has wine, and if there is wine and it were to run out, well, guests can always drink, what, water, they can drink iced tea and lemonade, They can drink coffee, but for the culture of Jesus' day, to run out of wine at a wedding was a crisis. Now, of course, they didn't have all of the drink options that we do. Even their water was often suspect, which is why they would add alcoholic wine to water in order to disinfect it. And so it was probably not entirely a matter of celebration. It was a matter of safety, a matter of hydration. Still, a week-long celebration seems hardly necessary. Um, A lack of wine, not that big of a problem in our eyes. But to the people then, this was a major disaster. And Mary apparently thinks that Jesus can and should do something about it 
to save face for the groom. Again, an indication that this groom was probably a friend or relative of the family. And it seems that the thinking is that if something is done right away, no one needs to know, and the festivities can continue unabated. Now, we have no reason to believe that Jesus performed miracles before this. If anything, the fact that John says this turning of water into wine is the first of Jesus' signs tells us that this is the first time that he has performed a miracle. At the same time, some want to tell us that this word first can mean primary, which would mean that this was not necessarily Jesus' first miracle, but the first one of special significance that John wants to record. That's certainly possible, but I think the natural reading of the text is that this was the first or the beginning of Jesus' miracles, and that Mary anticipated and expected a miracle, and I would point out not because of past experience. There are apocryphal writings which describe Jesus as a young boy um, performing miracles that Mary would have known about, but we don't believe those apocryphal accounts are actual scripture. So we believe that she is here anticipating, expecting a miracle, not because of experience, but simply because she knew who Jesus was. She knew he was the divine son of God, God with us. And by faith, she was able to extrapolate and to, and to imagine Jesus being able to fix the problem at hand. So this brings us to the sign and to verses 6 and following, which tell us what Jesus' first miracle involved. The site of the wedding were six stone water jars that could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water each, so a total of 120 to 180 gallons altogether. Jesus instructed the servants to fill the jars with water, and they did so. They filled them even to the brim, we are told. Jesus then instructed the servants to draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, there's some talk about what is this master of the feast? Who is he? What kind of a position was that? We would probably call him the head waiter. He was probably just the head guy of the catering of this wedding. And when he had tasted the water, it had become wine. The master was so impressed by the quality of the wine that he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. We are given an additional detail in the text, which is that the master did not know where the wine had come from, but that the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the fact recorded by John of the disciples believing in Jesus would indicate that they also knew what Jesus had done and were responding appropriately with faith. Well, this miracle was a sign. And so this was a miracle with a message, a kind of parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, an event meant to teach us spiritual truths. So what does this sign teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us a number of things about our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to point out four things, four areas um, namely, this parable tells us, this, this sign tells us, this miracle tells us about his authority, his values, his identity, and his purpose. So we begin with authority. There are lessons in this event regarding Jesus' authority. First, there is the interaction with his mother in which he asserts his authority over her. And second, there is divine authority over creation in turning water into wine. So first, I would direct your attention to what the text tells us about Jesus' authority over his mother. 
I direct your attention to how Jesus addressed his mother when she had informed him that there was no more wine. Verse 4 has these words, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Literally, the Greek says, What to you and to me, woman? What to you and to me? It's hard to know exactly, right, what that expression means. And so there are many ideas that are floated by commentators, and the best solution, I believe, is to let Scripture interpret Scripture and consider other passages that use that very same Greek expression. And that expression is used more than once by demons, actually, in the context of Jesus casting them out. For example, Mark 5-7 records a demon-possessed man saying to Jesus, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Literally, what to you and to me, Jesus, this demon says through this demon-possessed man. So basically, the demon is saying to Jesus, what do you have against me? Or why do you need to concern yourself with me? He wants Jesus to back off. He wants Jesus to leave him alone. And Jesus is saying then basically the same thing to his mother. And this understanding matches with the common thread found among commentators that even though they vary in exactly how they would translate the Jesus question, it's clear to all of them that Jesus is distancing himself from his mother. It's also agreed that in calling her woman, Jesus is setting aside for the moment his human relationship with her, although the commentators also want to point out that Jesus is not being rude to his mother by addressing her in this way. Um, Again, translation is difficult. It's been suggested that the southern respectful address of ma'am probably best captures the tone here of Jesus' address to his mom. Well, Mary apparently expects Jesus to act and to fix the problem at hand, and Jesus' response indicates that she is being demanded, uh, being demanding. The, um, the Lord's words to her, his response to her, is a mild rebuke that indicates that he is not going to be told what to do, especially when the pressure is being put upon him to do something that doesn't line up with his plans. As part of his rebuke, Jesus tells her that his hour has not yet come. And last time I explained that in Scripture, when Jesus refers to his hour, this is refer, he's referring to the time of his trial and crucifixion. When, what Jesus says about his hour not yet come, I believe, is not to be separated from the question that he asks her and must, in fact, guide us in understanding what he is getting at. So essentially, he's saying, Woman or ma'am, what do you have against me? Why concern yourself with involving me in the problem at hand? Do you not know that when I perform miracles, there are going to be people who will end up hating me and wanting to see me die? But my hour has not yet come, and so I must be careful in how I do miracles, because miracles can easily allow my hour to come too soon. And Mary is to be commended for her response. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. You see, she backs off from being demanding. She gives the matter over to Jesus to do as he will. We also can notice that she takes stock of the fact that he didn't say he wouldn't do anything. And she exercises faith by continuing to believe that he can solve the problem if he so chooses. There's a lesson in this for us. 
Again, this is a sign and this is a miracle with a message. Jesus is the one in charge, not us. Practically speaking, that means that you and I shouldn't try to tell Jesus what to do. We shouldn't presume upon him to do the things that we think he should do. Jesus is not going to subject himself to human advice and to human agendas and human manipulation. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, let us learn this lesson. Are we not at times guilty of the same sin of presumption, the sin of going to him and dictating to him? We rush into his presence and say, grant me this. I must have it. You're able to give this. Why don't you do it? Is that not the sort of thing we have all been tempted to do? Do you demand things? Do you claim things? Do you say, do this now? Our Lord rebuked his earthly mother for presumption. But must we not all plead guilty? We always want God's blessings to come in the way and at the time that we have chosen. Like children, we are annoyed if God does not answer the moment we ask. Never let us forget this. God is a sovereign Lord. He knows his own will. He decides when to act and how to act. He knows what is best for us, and everything is for his glory. Let us, therefore, beware of the sin of presumption. We must leave ourselves in his hands. Let us, therefore, learn this preliminary lesson from the marriage feast at Cana of Galilee. Stop grumbling, stop nagging, stop complaining and demanding. Take the rebuke that was given to Mary. Humble yourself, wait patiently for him. Of course, the Lord can help, and you are right to believe so, but he has his own agenda, and what he decides to do is always right. And notice, at this point, we're not actually dealing with the miracle of turning water into wine, but this sign took place in this context, and the context here adds something to the message of this miracle, the need to submit to Christ's will. There's also the authority of Jesus the divine authority of Jesus as God to turn water into wine. In the case of this particular miracle, we don't read of Jesus doing anything that, in, that, that could be heard or seen. We, we notice he didn't outwardly call the water into wine. He didn't touch the water. He simply, noticed, willed the water into wine. He thought about what he wanted to hap- have happen, and it happened. And this is a powerful and unmistakable confirmation that he has the divine authority of God, our creator. For Jesus to turn one created thing into another is to create as only God can do. What Jesus did is a sign that indeed all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This, this, sign is, uh, this miracle is a sign that Jesus is the creator God who has the power to call that which was not into being. This miracle also teaches us a lesson in Jesus' values. We learn something about what Jesus thinks about marriage, as well as Jesus' concern for details. That Jesus would create wine for this wedding celebration tells us that Jesus values marriage. It tells us that he considers it worthy of celebration. Now, that's not the main thing, but that is certainly part of the message here. Our own book of church order in the OPC includes a suggested form for a wedding service and included in the declaration of purpose, the purpose of 
marriage and of the wedding are the words, Our Lord Jesus Christ honored marriage by his presence and first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. We notice that Jesus willingly attended this wedding. He was willing to do a miracle that allowed this marriage celebration to continue without interruption. It's clear he believes marriage is important. It is something to celebrate. It's interesting to note that at the same time, this miracle involved helping with something that could be argued as trivial. Is wine really necessary at a wedding celebration? Is a lack of wine the end of the world? It's easy to see that other signs that Jesus will perform, like raising someone from the dead, releasing someone from demon possession, healing an illness, those are things that are far more important than people having wine. That Jesus was willing to exercise divine power to avoid a groom facing embarrassment by providing wine for a wedding celebration tells us that Jesus values our desires even when they are beyond just necessities. It isn't that Jesus is always going to give us what we want. You and I must not presume upon his grace by thinking we deserve or really need anything beyond our daily bread. His glory and his will are what are important. Our comfort and our enjoyment of life, these things are not to be the priority. And yet, does it not tell us something of Christ's love and of his care that it includes the little things and not just the big things? The Lord is generous. He's often willing to give us not just what we need, but to bless us with the extras, if it serves a godly purpose, like in this case, adding to the enjoyment and celebration of a marriage. We notice even that Jesus provided high-quality wine. He didn't just provide average or, or poor wine, but Great wine that impressed this head waiter at the, at the wedding celebration. And in great abundance, gallons upon gallons. We are told that the, the amount of wine here that Jesus created was enough to fill 750 to 1,000 bottles of wine. And we are told that a ton of grapes, literally 2,000 pounds of grapes, would have been required to make the amount of wine that was needed to fill those six stone water jars. There's also a lot to be gleaned here regarding Jesus' identity. Um, A lot to be gleaned about his identity from this miraculous sign. Marriage and wine are often associated in Scripture with spiritual matters. Human marriage is presented as an illustration of our relationship with God in the covenant. In the Old Testament, God refers to himself as Israel's bridegroom and husband. In the New Testament, Jesus is the bridegroom and his church. We, his people, redeemed and and brought to himself through his death on the cross are his bride. And because of wine's role in celebrations as a good gift from God that gladdens the heart of man, wine and feasting are associated with the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom greatness. Wine is used by Christ's appointment in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And so I'd have you to consider the scriptural evidence for these spiritual connections. So marriage is connected with our salvation in Christ. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, God is rejoicing over us. Um, His rejoicing over us in salvation is said to be like the joy of marriage. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
In Ephesians 5.22, we read, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. When Jesus was asked why the disciples do not fast, he explained with a rhetorical question in Matthew 9.15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Clearly indicating that he's the bridegroom when we are the wedding guests in his kingdom. In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins, which pictures the return of Jesus as a bridegroom coming to pick up his bride and bring her to the wedding celebration. And Jesus had this very custom in mind of what a bridegroom would do when he said in John 14 that he will go to prepare a place for us, and then he will come again and take us to himself. In addition, we have in Scripture wine used in connection with the prosperity with which God blesses his people. In the Old Testament, such earthly prosperity was a sign of spiritual prosperity that would be ours through the Christ, wine being even related to the gospel itself. Consider such passages, Psalm 104, 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Isaac blessed Jacob in part with the words from Genesis 27, 28, May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. The blessing of the Lord on Israel in its return from captivity is described in terms of earthly prosperity involving wine in Jeremiah 31, verses 11 and 12, where it says, For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Or we have the gospel call of Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Then we have the words of Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20. And when the hour came, he reclined at table the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So let's consider then the implications 
of Jesus encouraging wedding celebrations and providing wine in abundance. He's naturally highlighting his identity as the bridegroom of his people. By creating wine, he is showing that he is the source of all good things, especially the blessings of the covenant that belong to God's people through the Messiah. And since Jesus is the creator, God himself, he is able to bring us the realities of the promised salvation, able to atone for our sins and to bring us the riches of his eternal kingdom. These things belong to the sign of Jesus miraculously providing wine for a wedding, especially when all of these earthly things were already by God's appointment signs of his covenant and signs of the blessings of the saving work of his Messiah. There's also the sign that comes out of this miracle setting forth Jesus' purpose in setting aside the ceremonies of the Old Testament and especially the extraneous man-made laws of the religious leaders. I'm referring in particular how in this sign Jesus turned what was water set aside for the Jewish rites of purification into wine. These jars that are referred to, these jars of water, you understand, were not for drinking. It's been pointed out that, in fact, the head waiter would have been grossed out if he had known the servants had dipped from these water jars when giving him a sample. These were water jars that held water used for washing hands, according to the traditions of the Jews. See, the Jews of Jesus' day went beyond the law of God in requiring special hand washing. Remember how in Mark 7, Jesus' disciples were accused of eating with unwashed hands. It wasn't that they were eating with filthy hands that were covered with dirt and mud or you know, hands that were unsanitary. What they were being accused of doing was not washing their hands as the Jews had prescribed. There was a specific ceremony, a specific way in which they were to wash their hands. Not at all was this revealed in Scripture. This was something that was added to the Scriptures. And Jesus was not enforcing those man-made rules with his disciples, hence the accusation that they were not washing their hands. These were extra-biblical rules. They had to do with trying to earn salvation by good works rather than being about being obedient to God according to his law out of gratitude for his grace. And so for Jesus to take this water, which we are told was for Jewish rites of purification, and to turn that water into wine was really to thumb and nose at their ceremonies. Not only was Jesus coming going to mean the end of all of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the end of all of its many ceremonies of clean and unclean because he was fulfilling it all would also be his goal. It was his goal to release his people from all of these extra laws that were a burden and that were contrary to the gospel created by men to try, as a way to try to earn favor with God. True faith has always been about trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, while at the same time repudiating any trust in one's own good works or, or any trust in some religious ceremony, some particular way of washing one's hands. And so this detail of the type of jars from which this water came that Jesus turned into wine was a sign that Jesus was come to usher in a new era of freedom. Freedom from the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, freedom from the man-made laws of the Jews, and uh, he was the fulfillment 
of all of the Old Testament signs and types. Which brings us then to a consideration of the result of this sign that Jesus performed. Now, of course, there's the intended result, which is that people would believe upon him. John 20, in verses 30 and 31, says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the goal is that, that all upon whom the light of these signs shines would seek the forgiveness of their sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is probably the significance of this sign taking place on day seven in the chronology that John records. I think there's so much that could be explored in this area. I can imagine someone doing some kind of even a doctoral thesis or a master's thesis on this whole idea of the fact that this happened on day seven, this wedding celebration, Jesus performing this sign on day seven. Jesus is the one who brings Sabbath rest. He's the one who brings the rest that belongs to the kingdom of God and rest from trying to earn salvation, the rest of fellowship with God in heaven as is symbolized by the fact that we are the bride of Christ and he is our bridegroom. Consider the main principles as we close here this evening, the main principles that belong really to all of Jesus' signs. In all of his signs, there's first of all a need that man cannot fulfill. In this case, there was a lack of wine. There was an emptiness that needed filling. We might imagine in this particular case, maybe there would have been a human solution. We, we think, well, why couldn't they just get more wine? But apparently, the groom and Mary and others in charge of the wedding festivities were at the end of their resources. The need, that is in the context of all of Jesus' miracles, points to our spiritual emptiness. It points to our weakness. It points to our inability to fix the problem. In and of ourselves, we have not met God's standard of righteousness, and we're not able to do so. Need brought on by our sin should point us to seek help from Christ. And the second main principle of all of Jesus' signs is that he is able to help us. Jesus is able to do what we can't do. He was able and he did earn righteousness for us when all we could earn was condemnation. And what he does is to use means that don't seem right to us. Uh, he, he uses means that don't seem like the right thing to do. And so obedience and submission to Jesus' instruction is required. Notice how when the servants brought water to the master of the feast in obedience to Christ, they were doing what on the surface was not going to solve the problem. Water taken from purification jars, dipped out and then given to the master of the feast, that doesn't seem like a good idea. But Jesus accomplishes his goals his way. And when he came to this earth, the way of salvation that he had planned for us was to die for us on a cross. And in that death, to take the punishment our sins deserve. On the face of it, on the surface, death does not sound like the way to salvation. But Jesus knew what he was doing. And to believe upon him is to trust that he is God. 
And through the atoning sacrifice of his death on the cross, he can save you from the curse of sin and can fill your spiritual emptiness. To believe upon him is to trust in him to be your loving bridegroom and to provide a life of fellowship with God that is worth celebrating for all eternity. And so we find here that a sign has been given, the first of his signs, do you believe? What is your response to this sign? Because not all do believe. As we read further in John's gospel about Jesus' signs, we will take note of the pattern of people believing and not believing. Jesus' disciples believed in him. We know that Mary had faith. We are told later that Jesus' brothers did not believe. They were perhaps here. It seems to seems so from verse 12, but we know later that they did not believe. We are told nothing about the servants believing, even though they were the ones most exposed to the light of who Jesus is. And of course, there are always excuses. There are always denials that people are ready to make to turn away from Christ in faith. But the truth about who Jesus is, his power, his love, his concern, his willingness to bless those who trust in him, it is absolutely clear. He is the light of the world. And he deserves your trust. And to not trust in him is to reject the light and to choose darkness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the clear light that Jesus shines through his signs, the light of his power, the fact that he is God himself, your son, that he is able to meet our deepest needs. Father, we pray that as this light of the gospel shines upon us, that we would receive him in faith, that we would recognize our need for him to meet the spiritual needs of our lives, that he is the one who can meet all of our needs. And we thank you, Father, for how this sign occurred in the context of a wedding celebration and, and where there was drinking of wine, all things that, according to your, your scriptures themselves, point to the Messiah and to his saving work and to the blessings of your kingdom. So, Father, we thank you for how you have revealed to us Jesus as the one to whom we are to look for all spiritual blessings. Father, we pray that you would open all of the eyes of those here, that they would see Christ in his glory, they would recognize his grace, his mercy, that he is worthy of their trust. We pray that we each one would not turn away from this light, choosing darkness, but would believe upon him, even as your disciples did. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.